This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. I was hoping I could run up the steps like a young preacher, but it just wasn't happening. It sure is nice to be with you today and to have the opportunity to stand in for our pastor who uh, is on vacation but is preaching this morning for Brother Don Davidson up in northern Virginia. Don is away on a a trip, maybe a missions trip. I'm not certain of that, but uh, it's a great privilege and, and delight for me to be with you this morning. I want to mention a couple of things. Uh, I said these in the early service. Um, one thing that doesn't change is that things change. Um, we have some, some changes on the schedule here at First Baptist, and I would urge you to remember that change has happened from the day Jesus went back to heaven and the church was born until now. There has often been resistance to change when they stopped meeting in homes and started meeting in separate buildings, which didn't happen for a couple of hundred years after uh, Christ established the church. There were people who resisted that, but we've kind of gotten on board with that change, and here we are meeting in in a building set apart for that purpose. When they started singing outside of the the psalms, started actually having books with songs in them called hymn books, there were people who resisted that change and said, you know, we've been singing out of the psalms for hundreds of years. Why do we need to change it? But we got on board and, and we accepted the change and we moved along. We brought instruments into the church. In the early days, everything was a cappella. And uh, when they brought the piano in out of the saloon, and the ballroom, there were people who resisted that. Nonetheless, we got on board. We accepted the change. And, you know, things become tradition to us that were not tradition early on. So keep that in mind as we move ahead for the future and make changes that are necessary and will be beneficial to our church as a family and to the community that we hope to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. One other little word aside from Luke 7, which I invite you to be turning to, Uh, In the foyer and in the back halls, uh, you'll find a few of these brochures that uh, advertise a trip that we have planned to Israel uh, next February and March, God willing. And if you would be interested in that, our our pastor went with us in in, uh, 2007, I think. Several of you have been on on, uh, one or more of those trips And we would love to to take some others of you. So if you're interested in that, grab one of those. There are phone numbers in there. Give us a call. We'll answer any questions that you have if we can. I have a hat in my my closet that says, um, Don't worry, America. Israel is behind you. (laughs) And this morning, Stuart leaned up and said, A Hebrew has your back. And so I, I had to think of my hat in the, in the closet this morning. Don't worry, America. Israel is behind you. Luke chapter 7. When we were in Israel back in June with about a dozen of you, eight, eight or ten perhaps, uh, one of the places we visited was Capernaum. That's where Luke chapter 7 begins in verses 1 through 10 or so where Jesus is there and And he heals a man, 
And then uh, he moves about 25 miles uh, south, southwest to uh, Nain, a little town where a funeral was taking place. And Jesus broke up the funeral and uh, turned him around and raised the boy from the dead. And so things changed there. That was in verses 11 to 17. When, when we come to verse 18, we enter a new paragraph, and I, I can't tell you the location because I don't know where John the Baptist was imprisoned. Um, tradition says he was down uh, off, of the, off of the Dead Sea at a place called Machaerus, but the Bible doesn't say, so I can't be certain in, in declaring to you where, where he was this morning. But John the Baptist is, is locked up. He's, he's in prison. And he gets this report. Uh, verse 17 of Luke 7 uh, records for us that these things that Jesus did were reported all around. And verse 18 tells us that the disciples of John the Baptist carried the report of the things that Jesus was doing, the, the miracle from uh, verses 1 to 10 of healing the man, the miracle in verses 11 to 17 of raising the man, uh, the boy from the dead. And so they bring that report to Jesus, or to, uh, to John the Baptist, rather, of Jesus. And so when we get into to our paragraph, verses 18 to 23 this morning, we find John the Baptist locked up, troubled, questioning, but handling it well. And that's, that's how I want to challenge us today. That when we have our down times, when we have our struggles, when we have our difficulties, and we have them, do we not? I mean, they come in life, and uh, you can't duck them, you can't dodge them. They're a part of, of the human experience. And when they come, we need to, we need to handle them well. Uh, in speech class... I know it will come as a surprise to some of you that I took a speech class, but I actually took two semesters of speech and, and passed the courses, believe it or not. But one of the things we had to do was to memorize a poem or a, or a hymn. And I chose uh, to, uh, on one occasion to memorize um, these lines. God has not promised skies always blue, flowers strong pathways all our lives through. God has not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. But God has promised strength for the day, rest for the weary and light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, and undying love. And that's exactly what we see Jesus giving to John the Baptist when John the Baptist was in a low point, perhaps the lowest point of his life, and began to have some questions. He began to have some struggles. And I appreciate that John was honest and open and shared his struggles and looked for help. I want to give you a general challenge this morning. And that is this. We cannot, we must not measure God's love and grace by our worst circumstances. Do you tend to do that sometimes? I think perhaps I do. And when I'm, when I'm flying high and, and, and riding up on top, I put the measuring tape away. God is good. and Everything is rosy. 
But boy, when we, when we plummet, when we plunge, when we get in a low point, it's real easy to, to pull that measuring tape back out, to grab that thermometer, that barometer, and try to find out what's going on, what's God doing with me. And I want to challenge you that when you're having a difficult time, do not use that time as a measure of God's love and grace for you. And we'll say more about that as the morning goes on. What I'd like you to do now is look with me at verses 18 to 20 of our very short paragraph and think about this season of discouragement. The season of discouragement that John was having. And the disciples of John reported to him about all these things. All what things? The miracles that Jesus was performing. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, Are you, if you mark your Bibles, underline that word, you. Maybe put a little exclamation mark behind it. Perhaps use a highlighter if that's what you do. It is an emphasized word in this verse grammatically. Are you the expected one, the one who is to come, or do we look for someone else? And when the men had come to him, that is to Jesus, they said, and if, if your version does a good job of translating, it will be identical, word for word, letter for letter, punctuation mark for punctuation mark, what John said to say, they were accurate messengers. Look at it. John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, and here's the quote, Are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? This season of discouragement intrigues me. It grabs my attention. And I hope that it, that it will yours. It was preceded by what I like to call high expectations. John the Baptist came on the scene as the herald of the king. He was, it was predicted of him in, in some of the prophets that there would be a, 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 an Elijah-like prophet who would come and who would prepare the way of the king. He's the one who would fill in the valleys and knock down the high places and, and smooth out the path for Messiah to come. And, and so here's John the Baptist, the most popular preacher in Israel at the time, baptizing in the Jordan River, and Jesus shows up on the ridge, and John looks up and sees him, and, and God says to John, that's him. That's the one. Now, when I said that's him, some of you know that's bad grammar. But that's he just doesn't sound right, though it is grammatically correct. So let me rephrase it. That's the one I was telling you about, John. No grammar problems there. He's the one. And John looked up and he said to those who had come out to hear him preach and to be baptized in the baptism of repentance there in the Jordan River, he said, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I introduce you to the concept of forgiveness, not atonement. Atonement is not a New Testament word. It's not a church era word. Atonement was covering of sin. But Jesus didn't come to cover sins. You know, atonement had to be done over and over and over again every year, right? Yom Kippur, 
Day of Atonement, high priest, blood of the sacrifice, behind the curtain, holy of holies, blood on the mercy seat, sins covered for another 12 months. Not so with Jesus. When He came, He offered His own blood, one sacrifice for all men, for all sins, for all time, and He sat down at the Father's right hand. The one who takes away the sin of the world. High expectations. John said, look, I baptize you with water. But one is coming after me who's, who's mightier than I am, and he'll baptize you in the Holy Spirit. That happened to me. Did you know I was baptized in water right there? By the way, there was a time when people were baptized in rivers, flowing water, like Jesus was. And I can imagine the first time somebody wanted to put a baptistry in a church, and you baptize people in standing water, somebody had something to say about it. But I was baptized up there, and I didn't mind. It was okay. I've been baptized in the Jordan River, too, by the way. And if you come go with us to Israel, I'll baptize you in the Jordan River. But Jesus was baptized, and the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, came down upon him. And John recognized, this is Messiah. This is God's Son. This is the one who, who baptizes in the Spirit. And then John said, and he was the, remember, the most popular preacher in Israel. And he said this about Jesus and Him. He said, He, Jesus, John 3.30, He must increase, but I must decrease. High expectations. I find it interesting that when John decreased, he had problems. He had questions. And you know what we do too? You and I, we, we sometimes ask God, why? What are you doing? And I think it's okay to do that. Be honest in your struggle. John certainly was. He had high expectations. And then he had this humbling experience. Now I tell you why John had a humbling experience. First of all, he was not a 21st century preacher. Now, thank God for some 21st century preachers who preach the truth, who talk about sin, who talk about the fact that sinners are lost and headed for hell apart from the grace of God in Christ. Thank God for pastors like that, like our pastor and our pastors. But there are a lot of 21st century preachers who don't talk about hell, who don't talk about sin. They talk about positive things. They've taken Norman Vincent Peale and given him a new spin and a shot of steroids and jacked him up. And everything's rosy and everything's good. And boy, has God got a good plan for you. And everything's going to be okay. Especially if you send money to their ministry. Then you'll really fly high. Or somebody will. <laughs> no, John the Baptist cried out against sin. And he told Herod, it's not right for you to be sleeping with your brother's wife. The result of that was John got locked up and eventually got beheaded. So he had high expectations. He had a humbling experience. And he had an honest inquiry. He called these two men to him. The report came. He heard the report. He didn't immediately send two men. They must have gone away. He sits in his jail cell and he thinks about what's going on. Jesus is the Messiah. I said so. He's here. He's working miracles. 
Why am I in prison? If he is the coming one, why is this my lot? And so he sent for two of his disciples, and they came, and he sent them to Jesus with an honest inquiry. I admire John. I admire that he had the, the courage, the gut-level honesty to say, I'm confused. I have some doubts. Help me, Jesus. Brother Andy told me that in the morning service, when we came to this part of the message, he thought about that man to whom Jesus said, if, if, if you believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And that man said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so here's John saying, I believe, but, but help my, my lack of faith. Strengthen me in my faith and, and chase away my doubts. And you and I have to be honest to do that. We have to have people in our lives that we can be honest with. Husbands and wives should have that kind of relationship. Perhaps siblings should have that kind of relationship. It's not a bad idea to go outside the family and have a small group, an accountability group. A couple of three months ago, May it was, three months ago now, I and two other friends celebrated 20 years of accountability group. Three of us meeting about once a week for 20 years. I think that's around a thousand times we've, we've sat down, opened the Word of God, prayed together, and talked about life, and sometimes shared hard things with each other, knowing that it'll, everything we say will stay in that group, we will pray about it, we will encourage each other, we will not go out and talk about it. And here I am talking about it, but no details. Not a bad idea. I recommend that to you. Ladies with ladies, men with men. Don't go that other route. We've been studying in Sunday school a fellow who went the other route, you know. Somebody said, where did Solomon get all those wives? I said, well, God gave him the first one. Satan gave him the next 999. Be careful. Men meet with men. Ladies meet with ladies. Always a good idea. So here we have this honest inquiry. Alexander McLaren of, of Manchester, England, of a previous century, actually two centuries ago now, Alexander McLaren wrote this. John's reeling faith stretched out a hand to Jesus and sought to steady itself thereby. When your faith reels, R-E-E-L-S, when your faith staggers, Reach out and grab a hold of something solid, and that something is someone, and his name is Jesus. The season of discouragement. Move with me into verse 21. At that very time, that very hour, he, Jesus, cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave the gift of seeing. He granted sight to many who were blind. They asked Jesus a question. His answer was not in words. Sometimes the best answers are not in words. Sometimes a, a hug, a squeeze of the hand, a, just your presence is a good response sometimes. But Jesus gave his signs of deity. Now, we're going to have a little overlap here in this paragraph and the next paragraph, but you're, you're a bright group. You'll, you'll figure out what is what. And, 
And first of all, I want you to notice with me that the miracle report that came to John was what caused him to struggle. And so what was Jesus' answer to John's struggle? More miracles. A miracle report to John. First of all, he sensed John's need. He saw that John was was momentarily wavering. We do that, you know. And nobody knows it better than Jesus about us. He never experienced it. But he knows it about us. He has walked a mile in our shoes. He has lived in our skin. And he understands that we who are, who are mortal and frail, have a sinful nature, that we're going to have struggles. And he sensed John's need. By the way, you'll have a great ministry in life if you'll be looking for people with needs. You'll always have a, a congregation if you preach to people with broken hearts, my mentor used to say. I want a show of hands this morning. How many of you, since you became a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, have not had a struggle? Let me see your hands. Wonderful. I'm in the right church. I'm preaching this message to the right people. Because you all understand what John was going through. You understand struggles. And Jesus sensed John's need. The next thing Jesus did was to scripturally act. Now, what do I mean by that? The prophets had said, when Messiah comes, here's how you will know Him. Fourteen years ago, almost 15 years ago now, my wife and I led a group to to Israel. It was January 1999. And there were a number of people who came on the trip that we had never met before. And... They were gonna, we were going to meet them at the airport. So what did we do? We sent them a photograph. Not of John and Jackie Kennedy. We sent them a photograph of us, even wearing the clothes we were going to wear at the airport. And do you know what? When they walked through the door and saw us, Pastor Poteet, Barbara, that's exactly what God did when His Son, the Messiah, was going to come. He sent us through the prophets, a photograph. Now, not a picture with his face and his hair, but rather a picture of what he was going to do. He was going to heal the sick. He was going to raise the dead. He was going to preach the gospel to the poor. And do you know what Jesus did when he came? He did a lot of things. He healed the sick. and He raised the dead. And he preached the gospel to the poor. And so we have here these these scriptural acts, these signs of deity. I want to just step aside from the sermon for a moment, which means I need to get out here. There's a lot of talk in Christendom today about miracles. You can have a miracle. Expect a miracle. Make a donation to our ministry and get a miracle. I'm not talking about our ministry. Uh, you know, if, if, if a fellow tells you on TV, you, make, you send $1,000 to my ministry and God will make you rich. He said, yeah, but I'm making you rich by sending you $1,000. Can I tell you that that's not what miracles were about? Miracles weren't about raising money. Miracles weren't about enriching people and ministries. 
The primary purpose of miracles in the Word of God from beginning to end was always credentials for the man of God with the message of God. I illustrate. Three great waves of miracles in the Bible. You're good Bible students. You know who they were. Moses and Joshua. Elijah and Elisha. Jesus and the disciples, the apostles. Now, there were other random miracles like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego surviving the fiery furnace and Daniel surviving the lion's den and so forth. But for concentrations of miracles... While with Moses, even before they got in the wilderness and and drank water from a rock and ate manna from heaven, they had at least 11 miracles. And then Joshua led them across the Jordan River on dry ground. With Elijah and Elisha, you can count them. There are 24 miracles. And with Jesus, Jesus performed 35 miracles that are recorded, many, many more, no doubt. And then the apostles after him performed miracles. Did you know that in every one of those miracle waves, there is a clear statement as to the purpose of those miracles? God's primary purpose in feeding hungry people was not for hungry people to get fed. It was for them to know that Jesus was his man with his message. God's primary purpose with Moses and the the, the Red Sea was not for the children of Israel to get across to the other side. That happened. But the primary purpose was for them to know that he was God's man. Moses was God's man with God's message. Elijah raised a little boy from the dead, gave him back to his mother, and she said this, Now, Elijah... I know that you are a man of God and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. That's just one illustration that, that of which there are many in the Word of God. The primary purpose of the miracles was to be the credentials of Jesus. Now, John the Baptist has sent these men to Jesus. And if I could put it in 21st century language, you know what they asked, what he asked, and then they asked? Could we have a copy of your ID, your Messianic ID for John? He wants to be sure that you, emphasized word, that you are the expected one. Jesus didn't say anything, but he effectively said, no problem, here's my messianic identification. I'm going to do the works the prophet said the Messiah would do. And he did. He scripturally acted, and he worked to strengthen John's faith. Now, he had to revise John's thinking to strengthen his faith. And if John was looking for Jesus to kick the Romans out and go sit on the throne of David and there be no suffering and there be no cross and there be no grave, he had to be reprogrammed. So Jesus said, now you go tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. And that takes us to our third paragraph. Paragraph one, season of discouragement. Paragraph two, signs of deity. Now, paragraph three, the subduing of doubt. First of all, we have the indication of the prophets. Now, I, you have one of these. Uh, David, you said we call these in church life a bulletin, I think. 
In here, there's a place with some lines. I hope some of you have that out and are making notes. Well, preacher, I can't make notes and listen at the same time. Well, learn. Because listening is gone soon. Notes stick around. May I get you to write some things down? Just, just some verses of Scripture to go and look at later. They're all from Isaiah. And these are verses that describe what the Messiah will do when He comes. Isaiah, chapter 29, verses 18 and 19. Isaiah 29, 18 and 19. Don't try to go read them now, but, but, but write the references down. Isaiah 35, verses 3 to 6. 35, verses 3 to 6. Then Isaiah 61, 1. Isaiah 61, 1. Now what you'll find when you go and read those verses is this prophet that lived 700 plus years before Jesus was born describing what God's servant, the Messiah, would do when He came. The indication of the prophets. When He comes... This is what he will do. How in the world did so many miss him? Unless we be unjustly critical of the first century, how in the world do so many miss him today? I think part of the answer is because we are not shining the light and letting the whole world see. We're not singing to the glory of the risen King. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. People need to see Jesus in us. The indication of the prophets. The subduing of doubt continues. The identification of the Messiah. Look at verse 22. And He answered and said to them, Go. Report to John what you've seen, what you've heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Here is my ID. Take this messianic ID, my messianic identification, and carry it back to John. And tell him, you were right in Jordan when you said God's Lamb. You were right when you said I would baptize in the Holy Spirit. You were right when you said I would take away the sins of the world. Now, I love the way Jesus handled John. And I want to challenge us to handle each other the way Jesus handled John. Look at verse 23. Blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. You know, when they were gone, Jesus said, maybe even they were still there, Jesus said to the crowd, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Meaning, when you went out to hear John preach, what were you looking for? A reed shaken in the wind? No, not a reed. What did you go out in the, in the wilderness to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? 
eating the delicacies of the palace? No, John wore camel's hair and a leather belt and ate locusts and wild honey. You went out to see and hear a man of God. And that's exactly what you saw and heard in John. In fact, Jesus went on to say of John, relating him to the other prophets, there is no one greater than John. How did Jesus handle this man who was struggling with his faith? How did Jesus handle this man into whose life doubts had crept? How did Jesus handle him? You, you know, it was said of Jesus that he wouldn't, he wouldn't take a smoking candle and put it out. But rather he would, the lamp, he would trim the wick and, and, and turn it up and, and let it shine more brightly. He helped John. And when you encounter people who are struggling in their faith, don't kick them to the curb. Don't write them off. Love them back in and help them like Jesus did John. Never doubt in the darkness what you believed in the light. My challenge to you at the beginning of this message was we cannot, we must not measure God's grace and mercy by our worst circumstances. John issues here a beatitude, or Jesus does, about John. He says, blessed is he. John's going to get this information, and it's going to strengthen him in his soul, and he's not going to stumble. Blessed is he who is not offended in me, who is not stumbling because of me. Blessed is the person, I might add, who helps somebody else not to stumble. You know, we all make mistakes. We all mess up. I'm so glad for parents and pastors and Sunday school teachers who during my youthful dalliances in life kept on pointing me to Jesus, kept on pulling me back into the path. And they'd send out those little sheepdogs, goodness and mercy, who followed me all the days of my life. And kept me from getting too far off. And, and all and anything that ever has been accomplished in my life today is owing very largely to those people who saw a kid messing up but didn't write him off. Let us extend that same charity and favor to those that we see struggling in their faith. Now don't measure others. Don't measure God's grace and mercy. Don't measure others by their worst circumstance. And don't measure yourself by your worst circumstance. I often tell people, and I've been told often, if you're looking for evidence of God's love, the first place to go is not circumstances. It is Calvary. And all God's people said, Amen. God so loved the world that every time I got sick, He made me well. God so loved the world that every time I got broke, I got a check in the mail. God so loved the world that every time I struggled, He lifted me up. No, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The best thing that ever happened to me or anybody in here is God loved me and Jesus died for me. And God loved you and Jesus died for you. You want to measure God's love, get your ruler out, 
and measure the cross, not your circumstances. And if you haven't come to that cross, uh, what, a, what a glorious future awaits you if you will. God invites you to come to His Son, Jesus. And Jesus said, the one that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Father, I ask you this morning to, to bless this word to our hearts and our lives. We who are Christians know what it is to struggle and, and uh, to need encouragement from heaven and from, from people around us. And so we pray that you would make us encouragers, that you would make us honest in our struggles. Father, we know what it is to need Jesus and to flee to Him for salvation. And I, I pray that if there are those here this morning who are outside the family of God, that they will come to Him through faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Would you stand, please? I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.